been good to be with you the last couple of weeks, and we've been working through this story, and this story that we've been talking about has made me think about this topic that at times in my life has plagued me, and the topic is fear. Fear is this paralyzing type of emotion at times. It can keep us from our dreams. It can paralyze our relationships. And it can weigh us down with anxiety, wondering about what might happen. And, you know, there's, there's good kinds of fear, right? I mean, there's the kind of fear that protects us and keeps us from doing really dumb stuff like this. Look at this picture we have for you here. Not smart. Not smart. A friend of mine gave me a motivational poster uh, not too long ago. You remember those motivational posters? And uh, it ha- it, it, it's a picture of a, of a ship in the sea. Put that next picture up. And it says, fear, until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore, you will not know the terror of being forever lost at sea. <laughs> and so fear can sometimes protect us. But then there's the unhealthy type of fear, which is... It's, it's just unhealthy. <laughs> it's not helpful. And so maybe you can remember a time in your life where fear got the best of you. Maybe when you were younger, you didn't, you didn't go out for that team or you didn't, you didn't go to that audition. Or, or maybe as you got older, you didn't go for that job or that, that career that you wanted. Maybe you didn't move your family when you felt like, man, it would just be a really good thing if we did that. And, and you can sort of fill in the blank. Maybe you didn't speak your heart to that person. Maybe you didn't celebrate something that happened in your life because you were worried about what everybody might think and how they might judge you. Maybe fear kept you down in your discouragement. Maybe it kept you down in a sense of failure. Fear is paralyzing. A few weeks ago at the Leadership Summit, a guy named Gary Haugen, who was the founder of International Justice Mission, Justice Mission, and they go into areas that are really dark and really scary, and they rescue people out of slavery. He's talking to a group of leaders, and he says, leadership begins with a dream. But then he says that fear is a killer of the love of the dream. And so we have this preferable future. We have this place we want to go. And we often want people to go with us. And fear kills that. See, fear is just a, just a reality of life. And it's hard to imagine this story that we've been walking through without thinking about fear. A mom and her two boys pack up everything. She gets them all ready. And they go off on a dangerous journey to a dangerous, dangerous land. This picture was taken in 1936. This is Florence Owens Thompson. It's become a famous picture. It's called Migrant Mother. And the photojournalist journalist that took it took a whole bunch of pictures during that time and raised the awareness of the forgotten poor during the Depression because for the first time, people started to see it up close and personal, for themselves. Which is why I say sometimes you got to see things for yourselves. You have to go, whether it's locally or globally, and we have to experience this. Because if you can't see it, maybe it's not really, you know, as bad as they say, or maybe maybe it's just somebody else's problem. And they were living in this camp with about 2,500 to 3,500 people, and they had come to California to try to survive during the Dust Bowl in the Midwest. 
their car broke down and her husband went to find some parts for it. They actually had to sell the tires on the car to, to, to be able to have food. And, and, and at this point, this, this journalist came by on the road and saw her in a makeshift tent that they were kind of living in. She actually had seven kids at the time, ended up with ten total. And she said that they had been surviving on frozen peas that they were picking out of the field and on birds that the children could kill. Naomi doesn't go to the vineyards or the orchards or the fields of California. She goes into the billy of the beast. She goes to Moab. Moab, the evil Moabites, the tribe of Israel and the tribe of Moab did not get along, which is weird because they were related to one another way back, which is another story. But they hated each other. And the Moabites, I mean, they were crooked. I mean, they were strange. They sacrificed their children in the fire to their gods. And they, they, they just, they, they did things differently. And they weren't kind to the Israelites ever. And they just, there was hatred both ways. And how desperate do you have to be to make a move like that? Maybe she saw enough children die of starvation because they had no food in Bethlehem that she overcame her fear and she went to this place. And while there, her husband dies and her two kids died and, and she's overcome probably with just this massive amounts of grief. But I often wonder about the fear and the anxiety about what would happen next. Where does that leave her? And she starts off on this journey home because she hears that God is doing something, that he's moving, that he's providing for his people. And her daughter-in-law comes with her. And it's remarkable because now her daughter-in-law is going to her enemy, and she's also a widow. And so two widows making the dangerous journey back, and they arrive, and they're, they're bitter, and they're upset, and they not, they're not really sure where to turn. And Naomi is exhausted, and she's feeling shame, most likely. She's like, God has done this to me. What is, what is going on, God? Why me? Why now? I mean, I am just bitter about this. Have you been there? Have you felt like that ever? I was meeting with somebody this week, and they felt like that. And I said, just say it all. Be honest. Just let it, let it pour out of you, because God is a big enough God to say, to say hey, I can take it. Go ahead and just shout to God. And so Naomi is, she's sort of paralyzed, and she's just there, and she can't really do anything. And so she sends her daughter-in-law, Ruth, out into the fields to collect food for both of them. I actually found a picture of Ruth this week on the Internet. Do you guys want to see it? It's really old. It's 3,000 years old. It's amazing. Go ahead and throw that picture up there. You didn't know they had color back then, did you? You didn't know that. I, they just, they, they preserved it so well. It's amazing. And, and see, but, but really, here's one of the problems that we have. You know, because you compare this to the last picture that I put up. Go ahead and put those side by side. You guys, th- this is a major problem. When we come to the scriptures, we often come without enough honesty for what the context and the cultural situation and what the setting was really like. This is not a chick flick like The Notebook. You know, some, sometimes, sometimes pastors or curriculum writers or bloggers, they'll actually refer to the book of Ruth as the chick flick of the Bible. And, and it's just not helpful. This is not four weddings and a funeral. This is a love story, yes, but it's brutal. 
And I just think we need to do an honest reading sometimes. And it just takes a little bit of extra work to kind of get below the surface of things. Because if we don't do that, what often happens is there's this message that comes through, especially to the women who hear about Ruth. Ah, because, you know, Ruth, she, she works super hard. So ladies, you just need to work a little bit harder. You know, get out there, you know, sun up to sun down. Come on, roll up your sleeves a little bit more, and then maybe God will bless you. Maybe you will be a worthy woman, and then God will bless you. That kind of message, it just does damage, and it misses the point of the story. Yeah, Ruth was a hard worker. So are you. I don't know any woman that's not. So that's besides the point. And so I just want to advocate for an honest reading of the text because I think, I think it will hit us in ways that we might not suspect. And so if you have your Bible, I want to look into one of the strangest parts of the Bible. In fact, <laughs> this is really, really weird because Naomi comes up with a plan. And, and it's, it's, it's weird on the surface you know, way up here when we read it, but if we start to dig a little bit, it just gets strange, and in fact, it's a bit scandalous. And so Ruth chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some uh, on the tables as you come in, and if you don't own a Bible, just go ahead and keep that. If you want that Bible, go ahead and keep that. We would love for you to have that. You can pull up the YouVersion app, and there's some extra things in there as well. And we're going to look at a story today that all takes place on a threshing floor. Verse 1 of Ruth chapter 3. It says, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. And so up to this point in the story, Naomi, we know that she loves Ruth. We know that she loves her with a, with a selfless love because in chapter 1 she told Ruth to go back and live out her dream. I can't help you, Ruth, but, but, but go. Go get married again. Don't come with me. There's nothing I can do for you. You've already shown me the love that God shows to his people. She uses the word in, in chapter 1, has said. It's this loving kindness. It's this covenant loyalty. I will be loyal to the covenant even when my people are not loyal to the covenant. It's this it's this idea of the selfless love, and, and Naomi shows that to Ruth, and then Ruth comes right back at her, and she shows it to Naomi, and she goes with her. We know that Naomi loves Ruth, but she hasn't really had an opportunity because of, the own, of, of her own pain to really, to really take steps and show that love. And so she comes up with a plan, and she sees her daughter-in-law. She sees that she's young. She sees that she can probably still have babies, which in that culture meant that she could be provided for because some man was going to come along with an eligible woman to start a family because that was such a big deal. And if you're a lady in the audience and you're thinking to yourself, my, that sounds oppressive to me, I would say you're right. Can you imagine if we lived like that in our culture today, how regressive would that be? Hey, ladies, you need a guy to take care of you. And, uh, man, if you can't have kids, then sorry. You're just not going not gonna to help us out here. 
you know? And I, I think when we look at that, we have, to, we have to say, you know, what kind of injustice exists in a culture that does that? Where you have these two widows who have to come up with this plan that we're going to see in a minute so that they can have protection. And so Naomi comes up with this plan, and she decides that she's going to send Ruth into this situation that is, that is a bit dangerous for her. Uh, it's a bit scary for her. Um, there's some fear involved. And so look down at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. And remember, uh, from last week, he's not just any relative. He's a special kind of relative. They called it a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. It was a close relative that could rescue, that could redeem, is the word that they actually use, a person that's in trouble or danger or in need. And not only that, but Boaz is a man of standing. And so he can actually do something about the trouble that Naomi and Ruth are in. Why he hasn't done it already, we're not really sure. We don't really know that part of the story. We can only speculate. But it's the end of the harvest season, and the food's going to run out, and there's two widows that are living hand-to-mouth, and that's not a permanent solution. So it's do-or-die time. Sometimes when we read the Scriptures the way that they're helpful to us is if we look at that situation and we look at, yes, the oppressive nature of it, and yes, if, if, we, if we try to do that in our time, that would be regressive, and we kind of look at it for what it is. We see the picture of the migrant worker mom on the side of the road, and we go, somebody has to do something about that. And we pull that to our time, and we wrestle with it, and we dialogue with one another about it. And we ask, what would that look like now? Who are the forgotten now? Who are the ones in the margins now? Who are the ones that have to do desperate things just to survive now? And how should we respond? You see, I, I, I think sometimes it's easy just to say, you know, oh, that was oppressive and that wasn't good and we would never do that in our time. See, th- th- this story is, is 3,000 years old. I mean, it's, it's a completely different time and a completely different culture. But in our modern to postmodern arrogance, I think that sometimes we believe that we have a corner on the market on all utopian ethics that just came down from heaven, and we know what's right or wrong politically, socially, religiously. I mean, economically, you fill in the blank. You know who's really good at this? You know who's really good at kind of getting a corner in the market on everything that's right? Conservative Christianity. It's the stream of Christianity that I grew up in, and we love to be right about everything. We love to say, this is how it is, and they're all evil, and and they're all wrong. I sometimes wonder. I mean, this story is 3,000 years old. I mean, let's just go forward 1,000 years, one-third of that. I sometimes wonder what people in the future will think about us in the dark ages of the 21st century, what they're going to be saying about our oppressive nature in our time, even though we don't always know what it is. And so I I think the lesson here for us is maybe 
maybe we can just approach things with a little more humility. Maybe, maybe we can say once in a while, I might be wrong about that. Maybe we can say, I think I'm right, but I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. So let's, let's wrestle with this together. Let's, let's talk about this. Wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a world where we could sit across from somebody that we disagree with over some aspect of culture and society or whatever it might be, and we can wrestle with things together. And we can walk away in a sense of health and, and, and maybe even a sense of friendship. What if that was the reputation of us? Like by us, I mean like the church, I mean the followers of Jesus. That would be an amazing thing. But we love, we love, we love, we love to be right. And so Naomi and Ruth are in a desperate situation. And here's the plan. Are you ready for it? Here's, here's the passage. This is, this is the weird stuff. It says, tonight he, talking about Boaz, will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let, him see, don't, don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. And then go and uncover his feet, weird, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, thank you very much, he went over and lied down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Uh, yeah, it was probably Ruth freaking out, wondering what's going to happen. Why am I here? This is crazy stuff. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. And then I imagine before Boaz could get another word out edgewise, she just blurts out as fast as she can in her stress, in her anxiety, in her fear. And she says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Weird. Okay, is anybody ever, does anybody think that that's weird? Okay, so here's, here's the deal. This all takes place on this on this, this, this threshing floor, the, 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 this space. And, and there's, this, there's this major thing that they're trying to do. They're trying to rescue themselves. And, you know, th- th- this is a love story, and I get that, but it's not Rachel McAdams running to Ryan Gosling in the rain and having a kiss. If this doesn't work out, this is do or die. In fact, if this doesn't work out for Ruth, She's going to end up a lot more like Fontaine with the lovely ladies of the night out in the gutter. That's what's going to happen to her. This is what's going on. And so they're at the threshing floor. The threshing floor. The threshing floor in ancient Near Eastern cultures was a, 
was a place where a, a lot of things happened. Okay, on the surface, they took the wheat there, and they took the barley there, and they separated the wheat from the chaff, and they threshed it out and all that stuff. But it was also a place that was known for its infidelity. And the reason why is because when it was harvest season, which for barley began at the beginning of May, and it lasted about a month, and then they would take a break, and then they would go out in June, and they would have about another month where they would work on the wheat. And so Boaz and all of his workers and all of his clan and all of his relatives and all the men in his household would get together, and they would go on a road trip. They're on a business trip. They're going on tour, and they're going to go to the fields, and they're going to work all day long, and they don't want anybody to steal their stuff. Because that's how they're going to survive. This is important. they got to protect their grain. And so they don't come home. They all stay out there 24-7. So they work all day long. And then they go to the threshing floor. And then there's more work to do. And then at the end of it, they're going to eat something. And by golly, they're going to drink something. Because there's a bunch of guys out there. And they've been working all day. And that's it. And they're going to relax. And they're going to... That's, that's, that's what they do. And there's a group of ladies in town... And they know that's a gold mine. That's a gold mine. We're going to head out there just when those guys have had enough to drink. You see, there was actually an ancient Hebrew saying that what happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor. <laughs> I mean, this, this, is what the, this is what the context is. Oh, yeah, what, what does Naomi tell Ruth to do? Put on your makeup. And get decked out and show up right around the time that the prostitutes are showing up. Now I want you to hide and I want you to watch Boaz. And at just the right time, I want you to go and uncover his feet and lay down right there. Now when I was a kid in Sunday school, I imagined Boaz lying this way and Ruth lying this way like a capital T. It's not a capital T. We're talking about an 11, like a field goal right here, okay? You see, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea that there's uh, words behind the names. And uh, we talked about what some of the names meant. And we talked about the fact that the authors like to use irony as a literary device. And so irony is this idea that, that you, you kind of get pulled in one direction and then, and then you get surprised in this other direction. And because of that, we learned last week that the scriptures, these stories, they work as very subversive. And so they kind of pull you in and then they hit you right in the face. One of the things that the Hebrew writers used to love to do is they used to love to use euphemisms. You know, high school English, which I didn't do too well in, but um, a euphemism is a word that you substitute for another word because if you use that first word to explain that embarrassing situation, it might get a little awkward. And so we'll say things like, I got let go instead of I got fired. Uh, We'll say things like, you know, it's about time we tell our kids about the birds and the bees. And so we use this all the time. An old one lady says, I'll have to go powder my nose. And so in this passage, there's a couple euphemisms. There's actually some symbolic stuff, too, that we don't have time to get to. It's, it's really filled with a bunch of awkwardness if, if you really start to unpack all the different things. But I'll share two of them with you. The first one is uncover his feet. So you remember uh, King Saul, he didn't like David, so he was chasing David in the Old Testament. And in 1 Samuel 24, they're out kind of in the wilderness, and David goes into a cave and he hides. And it says that Saul goes into the cave. He didn't know David was in the cave, but he went into the cave to relieve himself. And so we, we understand that he went in there to relieve himself. 
But in Hebrew, it says he went in there to relieve his feet. So this is not a capital T that's going on here. And Naomi is asking Ruth to do something that's quite scandalous, quite dangerous. How unjust does a culture have to be where somebody has to do something that questionable, that crazy, in order to survive? Where do we see stuff like that happening in our time? There's another one, too. The other one is when she asks Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. Actually, that's already been said in the story because Boaz recognized Ruth. She recognized that she had loved her mother-in-law and been taking care of her. The whole town was talking about it. Uh, In chapter 2, she's known as a worthy woman because of her selfless love. And Boaz says that you've come here to take refuge under the wing of our God. See, to spread the corner of your garment was to go under the wing. And literally, that's what it says. It says, to spread your wing over me. Jesus used a phrase like this. He he stood outside of Jerusalem, and he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you to myself. Like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing. See, the idea of spreading the wing over somebody was to take care of them. It was to love them. It was to show that covenant loyalty that has said that we've been talking about. So Ruth says to Boaz, you're the one. You're the guardian redeemer. But Boaz wasn't her guardian redeemer. Boaz was Naomi's guardian redeemer. Spread the corner of your blanket over me. Spread your wing over me. Show covenant loyalty. Show love. Take care of me. Do you know what she was saying? Are you there? She's saying, will you marry me? And you get Naomi too. I mean, it was an amazing proposal. I mean, you might have a really good story. Like you went up in a hot air balloon. Or maybe you were on the jumbotron. Or, you know, you're sitting around at a party and you're talking about proposal stories. This one wins. I mean, this is it. This takes the cake. And she rolls the dice, and what's going to happen? What happens when she does that? Because this this is the climax of the story. What we see here is Ruth comes to Boaz in complete and utter vulnerability and weakness. She's unable to save herself, to change her situation, and she needs 100% grace. Here I am. Save me. And that's why this is the story of us. We come empty-handed, and you and I need a redeemer. Boaz will say to her, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to redeem you. And if you read chapter 4, he goes to work, and it doesn't take long. We have a God that has gone to work for us on the cross. And he says, I will redeem you. There's nothing that you can do to transform your own life. You can live on a survival level for only so long, just like these two widows did, but ultimately something has to change. We need a redeemer. Jesus had a friend named Peter, and when Peter got old, he wrote a letter to some people that were suffering. They were in chaos. 
And he says to them, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and your hope are in God. This is a story of us. And Boaz responds, and he's ecstatic because he's an older guy and he doesn't have kids, most likely. I mean, maybe he was widowed too. I mean, we don't know that part of the story, but he's an older guy and he's wealthy. He has means and he's alone. And so in his own way, he's also caught in the margins. What's going to happen with me? What's going to happen with all of this? What kind of legacy will I leave? And so he is pumped up and he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater. And that word kindness, again, that's the said. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I love that. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. When your life is in chaos, fear not. We have a God who promised, and that God is faithful. So two weeks ago, we talked about when our life is in chaos, find home. And the idea that our home is in God. And it's us and God, but it's not just us and God. And so we have to venture out because the way that God is setting the world right is he's setting people right who will work with him to set the world right. And so we go out and we risk love. When your life is in chaos, risk love. And on that journey, it's going to be scary. There's going to be ups and downs and it's going to be dark at times. But fear not, for he is with us. David said, even through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. If you were to go on and read chapter 4, which we can't get to, there's a celebration at the end because Ruth and Boaz have a little baby. And they name him Obed. And Obed means worshiper of God. And all the women of the town, they're, they're super excited. And they, they, they say this phrase to Ruth. They say, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. The widow, the woman, the Moabite, the immigrant is better than seven sons. Because her life is full again. Naomi went from full to empty and to full again. And maybe you need to experience God's fullness in your life these days. And you come to him and you say, I need you, Jesus. I need you. Change my life. Would you pray with me? God, thanks so much for your incredible love as we've seen this journey of love over the last few weeks. God, we've seen some strange stuff. We've seen some oppressive stuff. 
We've asked ourselves questions about what are we willing to risk and where are we at and where is our culture at and how are we working with you to bring love and justice. And God, from one side of this room to the other, there, there's, there's all sorts of different journeys going on and only you know that and only you are the Spirit of God that can do what only you can do and I pray that you would, you would meet us right where we're at. God, it'd be nice that if you dropped uh, a utopian perfection right out of the sky, but you don't do that. You, you, you meet us right where we're at, and then day by day, you kind of take us on this journey of transformation. And we know the end of the story that one day, one day things will be set right. But until then, we work with you. We pray, we pray for that. We, we hope for that. And we hope for it for ourselves, too. And so we come to you needing your grace, needing your mercy, and we say thank you for your love. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.